Welcome to Motivation Insiders, the podcast that explores the way incentive, recognition, and loyalty programs are designed, implemented, and measured. We look at motivation with an exclusive view from, well, the inside. With the help of experts from inside the industry and researchers examining the underlying motivations of why people do what they do, Motivation Insiders delivers a unique perspective that you'll find valuable as a designer, a program owner, or even a participant. This series is produced under the direction of the Incentive Marketing Association and its affiliate, the Board of Directors for the Incentive and Engagement Solutions Providers. And thank you to Iontario and her team for putting the website and graphical content together. She does a great job for the IMA, and it's a pleasure to be working with her. Lastly, we want to give a shout out to the sponsor for this episode, 110. 110 is all about your people. Whether they are your employees, sales teams, channel partners, dealers, or customers, 110 provides the agency services that will help you motivate your teams to sell more, stay longer, and increase loyalty to your organization. You can find them at 110marketing.com. And after all of that, I'm your host, Tim Houlihan, and I'm glad you can join us. In this episode of Motivation Insiders, we're going to focus on what you need to know about the motivational power of rewards, particularly when it comes to incentives and recognition. Now, on with the importance of rewards. It was a hot summer's day in Dayton, Ohio just before the Great Depression turned the world upside down. Elton McDonald, a young owner of a dry goods store, marched into the sales manager's office at National Cash Register to pitch a novel concept. You should use my merchandise as a reward, McDonald said. It will motivate your salespeople to sell more cash registers. The sales manager agreed to try it, and they decided the reward should be a brand new leather briefcase, shining with highly polished brass hardware. It was something the sales reps couldn't easily afford, and that the winner would carry that briefcase around like a trophy in front of all the other reps, as well as the customers. The briefcase was placed on a high desk in the office, and the sales manager announced that it would be awarded to the top seller at the end of the month. The briefcase remained there as a constant reminder during the program. As you might expect, sales were spectacular that month. And the industry for merchandise sales incentives was born. In a single stroke, McDonald discovered a key motivational tool, and he institutionalized the use of merchandise as an effective reward to motivate performance. Elton McDonald's use of the briefcase has been studied over the years, and it points to two key pillars of behavioral science that support the power of rewards. First, the most motivational reward should be hedonic, to engage our emotions. And second, it needs to be luxurious, to engage our attention. Scott Jeffrey, a professor of ethics at Monmouth University in New Jersey and acclaimed researcher in the area of rewards and motivation, describes the ideal reward from the point of view of the people who might earn it. Is it something they'll enjoy and wouldn't get it otherwise? So let's start by tackling the first part, hedonic. 
The reward needs to be hedonic to engage our emotions. Academics use the term hedonic, which is about the emotional pleasure of an experience or a thing. And we humans lean toward pleasure and away from pain whenever we can, so it's no mystery that an award should be pleasurable. One way to think about hedonic is to consider the things we enjoy enough to dream about. But before we go there, let's consider the millions of things that we don't dream about, like the next tank of gas for our car, the next bunch of broccoli, or sweeping the floor. If you think about it, we don't even dream about our paycheck. Then there are those things that we dream about that we don't enjoy, like paying our credit card bills and planning for our kids' college funds, but we call those things nightmares. Researchers lump this last group of things into a category they call utilitarian, and utilitarian things should be excluded from any rewards conversation. Now, back to the dreams about the things that we enjoy. They include our next vacation with the family, a summer barbecue with friends, hobbies we want to pursue, watching a big game on a brand new big screen television, or outfitting the nursery for our first child. These are considered hedonic. These are the things that would make a good reward. And what's extra cool is that even when we're not conscious of it, these hedonic things occupy our attention. Professor Jeffrey explains. So you make the incentive something that is that captures mind share, that keeps people thinking about it and keeps it top of mind while they're working. So... What rewards should you put into your rewards collection? What are the rewards that will derive the greatest motivation from your employees? Mark Smith, Senior Rewards Director at 110, starts by dispelling the myth that my people are different. Uh, There's really two demographics, especially in the workforce. You're talking about people in their 20s, perhaps up to late 30s, and then you're talking about everybody else. And if I were to just on pure redemptions over the last year, two years, three years, I would broadly say that younger generations are more about the experiences, uh, most, uh, most recent tech travel events and games from the, the older demographic, which I'll say is, you know, 30s up to 50s. You're looking at sporting goods and travel, uh, luxury brands, home and events, really bigger events. You know, we, we as people have a lot of different facets to us. And uh, what we were seeing in the last year are maybe people were taking that step to pursue a hobby that they wouldn't normally take, but now that they had time on their hands, maybe they're a little more empowered to do so. So I don't see a shift back to the traditional electronics, audio, apparel, fashion down the line that you might have seen. I still think you're still going to see sporting goods. I still think you're going to see health and beauty. Uh, I don't think they're going to Notice that Mark didn't mention anything about utilitarian items like paying bills or putting gas in the car. Just saying. Now for the second part of what makes the reward itself so powerful. It's luxury. The reward is most motivational when it is something that we'll strive for, something that is above and beyond our daily lives, something we wouldn't spend our own money on. 
Again, let's start with the fact that we don't dream about utilitarian items, the mundane household items that we consume every day, because they're so familiar. There's nothing exceptional about our toothpaste. We're likely to dream about things and experiences that are luxurious, things we wouldn't normally spend our own money on. Mark Smith offers a long and practical list. In a points program, you are looking for something particular that we have discovered uh, through our research and data that is more hobby-related or luxury-related or particularly, and this will come back to, is travel and experience and events related. It's more like understanding that the audiences are looking for sporting goods and how, you know, house items and wellness stuff and electronics and Apple. And, and it's, so it's thoughtful. And a really good provider knows this and continues to fine tune their assortment. He even offered a perspective by addressing his own personal motivational rewards. What I was really satisfied to see this time around, particularly in the last year, are things that uh, were associated with wellness and hobbies. It's not only that the luxurious is more motivational up front. The truly luxurious reward also creates memories. Back to Professor Jeffrey. So if it's, if it's travel, you get to relive the experience. Memories like that tend to improve over time. You forget about you know, the rain or the traffic or you remember the positive things more than the negative things. So there's that. And also the thing about a tangible incentive, an item, is it provides a physical reminder of the performance that led to its receipt. So if you're sitting in your living room watching a television that the company gave you, you're reminded all the time that the company gave you this great reward. So that that has a reinforcing aspect to it. Okay, you say. But people go to work to earn money. So why not reward them with cash? Well, let's discuss this. A few years ago, two researchers, one from Berkeley and one from MIT, wondered about the motivational power of money and created a series of experiments to test it. James Heyman and Dan Ariely put people in situations where they offered a reward in exchange for doing a challenging task. In one of those studies, the research assistants went out into the street and asked random strangers to help them change their tire. The research assistant would tell the stranger that they had a flat and ask for their help. That was the control group. There was no reward for those in the control group. Just a simple ask, will you help me? And about two-thirds of the time, the strangers agreed to help. Then they tested different items to see if a reward would change behavior. In the first study condition, the research assistant asked something like, all I've got is a box of chocolates, but you can have it if you help me change my tire. And in a second study condition, the research assistant asks, all I've got is $20, but you can have it if you help me change my tire. And in the third condition, the research assistant asks, all I've got is a $20 box of chocolates, but you can have it if you will help me change my tire. How did strangers respond to each of these requests? How do you think that you would respond if you got the question? Well, after dozens of people were asked these questions, it turned out that offering people a box of chocolates, like in the first condition of the study, 
did not get more people to respond than the control group. Pro tip here, if you've got a flat tire, you need help, and you've got a box of chocolates in the car, do not, I repeat, do not offer it in hope that you'll get more cooperation. It won't help, and you'll just lose a good box of chocolate. But it's noteworthy, too, that it also didn't get fewer people to respond. In the second condition, when the people were offered $20 cash, less than half said yes. And now we get to the third condition, where the box of chocolates was introduced with the cash value of the reward. What do you think happened? Did the strangers respond more like the cash group or the simple box of chocolates group? It turns out that telling someone the cash value of the reward elicited the same response as just giving them money. What the researchers discovered was that the social aspects of rewards are fragile and a social reward can easily be made bad by mentioning the monetary value. Money makes us more calculative and causes us to process it as a deal for the effort that we're going to expend rather than a gift. Yet, at the same time, it's a systematic blind spot that makes us think that telling someone the cash value shouldn't make a difference. We incorrectly believe that being reminded of the price wouldn't make a difference to our motivation. And that leads many people down a seemingly logical but incorrect path. If it doesn't matter if we tell them the cash value and people ask for cash, why not just give them cash? Professor Jeffrey identifies a common problem in the way business leaders deal with this issue. They want to survey their employees to ask which they'd prefer. I I think the main objection that most times you hear from company executives, we talked about this, is like, well, we've asked employees and they say they want money. So it's important to be able to push back on that and say, yes, but choice and the decision to apply effort are very different. And that's the underlying issue, choice. And Professor Jeffrey is referring to the choice between $20 and a box of chocolates. But it is not connected to the motivation center of our brain. Motivation to apply effort is connected to the part of our brain that deals with emotions. So the rewards that drive the greatest motivation are those that are connected most deeply to our emotions. Well, money won't be top of mind because it's... Uh, the right way to say this is it's boring. It, it's it's not something that you can play with in your mind the way you can play with an incentive. A trip to Hawaii. I mean, you can play that out in your mind. What am I going to do? I'm going to sit on the beach. I'm going to drink my ties. I'm going to have a great time. Cash doesn't really have that. The other point on cash is that it has justifiability constraints on it in terms of what is acceptable to spend that money on. And for the most part, it's not these highly salient, highly vivid trips, items, those kind of things that are highly hedonic. They're much more utilitarian. Many people still ask, ah, can't we just give them all cash so they can decide what they want for themselves? Professor Jeffrey speaks to the power of the reward as reinforcing the social exchange. It's attempting to create a more social relationship and less of a transactional relationship. Uh, They use the term money for services is completely transactional. And that is not a good place to be when you're a company. You want to be in more social relationship. 
I mean, we spend the majority of our waking life at work. It's like, yeah, is it too much to ask that we enjoy it? I think people like to enjoy where they work. People like to feel that that provides some meaning in their life. And if it's just come to work at 8.30 and leave at 5.30 and we're going to give you this big pile of cash, that's not meaningful. Professor Yana Gallus, who is at the University of California, Los Angeles, at the Anderson School of Business, goes even further in describing the importance of the social exchange in rewards. And in fact, there is even reason to believe that in some contexts, offering money or tying money to the award can backfire or tying, tying a gift card to the award can backfire. So I would encourage decision makers to think more freely about incentives and, and notably non-monetary incentives that really are based on this social element, purely the social element, without offering anything on top, any material or economic incentives on top. Another way to think about rewards is with the metaphor of the writer and the elephant. The writer is like our logical mind, rational in how it considers all things that will influence our happiness and success, like money. And the elephant is our emotions, the irrational desires we have to acquire cool things and to respect our social relationships at work. Professor Jeffrey reinforces how important it is to appeal to the elephant because in the end, the elephant's going to go where it wants to go. But what you want to do is you want to make sure that the incentive that you're offering becomes top of mind. Because then, you know, not to keep beating a dead horse or dead elephant, but that's what's going to engage the elephant to force the rider to take the actions that you want. Now, getting back to the tire-changing study, the recipients of the $20 could have gone out and purchased a box of chocolate or literally anything else they wanted that $20 could buy, which should have been more motivational. That's what the writer would have done, but that's not what happened. The elephant, the monstrous emotional center of our motivations, was in charge and went for the box of chocolates, even more so when the writer, that is the cash value, wasn't involved. Now, before we wrap up, there's a couple of other things to share when it comes to successful rewards programs. The first is about context and culture. While the motivational principles of rewards that we've discussed in this episode are universal, the way they get applied to your company, your industry, and your situation will have some unique aspects to it. And while we believe these principles to be universal, we also recognize that there are situations where things like prepaid cards, such as retail or bank cards, absolutely have their place. Like in situations where the payouts are one-time events or rebates, spiffs, or very low denomination situations. And there may be times when it's simply not practical to ship a mandolin because the destination is very remote. Your company culture and your situation may be unique, but keep in mind that the people who you are trying to recognize and reward are still human beings. We'd also recommend experimenting a bit. Try different things. Your product development team creates prototypes of the products and runs them by your customers. 
Your social media team tests different messages to promote your upcoming webinar. Why not test the rewards you're using to engage your own employees? Why not try some different things to learn what works best? Here again is Professor Gallus. Is to test, set up the, ideally set this up in a way that allows you to test what, whether you achieve the goals that you set for, up for yourself. So run small or ideally, you know, well-powered um, field experiments where you have a control group and then a treatment group that gets the new kind of incentive and then measure the outcome and see whether the people in your treatment group perform significantly better than those in the control group. And here, of course- Another thing to keep in mind is that a rewards program, whether you're using rewards as an incentive to motivate someone to do something or as recognition of a good performance that's already happened, is that a reward is different from a purchase. Mark Smith reminds us to frame rewards as something your employees earned, not something that they bought with their own money. In, in a points program, you really are treated as a winner. So the expectation is that you work for something and it's going to be exactly what you expected and it's going to get to you and it's going to be advertised at one price and there's not going to be any, you know, that'll be it. It comes to your door. And if there's a problem with it, then it will be replaced. And it's that simple. Lastly, employees that don't know about a reward opportunity won't strive for it. Many experts, including Mark, indicate that the lack of awareness is a remarkably large problem when it comes to incentive and recognition programs. And that's after some of the employees have already earned points. So the communications is is key. And then, of course, just making sure that, that the participants are aware that they have the points. And that, that comes from analysis. So the next time you're thinking about engaging your employees, whether it's your sales team in the form of an incentive or spiff or contest, or it's your general employee base with rewards to recognize excellent work, give some thought to these fundamentals. The best rewards will engage your people emotionally. And the best way to do that is with non-monetary rewards. The more emotionally charged the rewards are, the more motivation will come from them. Next, the best reward will be something your employees will strive for, something that they wouldn't generally buy for themselves, a luxury, an indulgence. Just make sure it's not something that they would normally use their own money for. It's also important to make sure the message about the rewards are available and what people can choose as a reward is top of mind. Make it easy for your employees to get something they want. And lastly, try something different. Elton McDonald tried something that set the sales world on fire with a little counterintuitive thinking. He offered some cash register sales reps the opportunity to earn a briefcase, and it made a huge difference in their performance. What's the equivalent of a shiny briefcase for your team? What bit of counterintuitive thinking could you pull from this podcast to apply to your business? Thanks to our sponsor, 110, for supporting this episode of Motivation Insiders. This podcast is a co-production of the IMA, IESP, and Behavioral Grooves. I'm your host, Tim Houlihan, and thank you for listening to Motivation Insiders. We hope you check out the other episodes as well. And we heard from some terrific experts in this episode. And if you'd like to be in touch with them, their contact information is available to you in the show notes. Thanks very much.